How would you describe that in one word? How would you describe the greatest day you had? Maybe it was the birth of a child. Maybe because of sickness, every day you awake and say, this is the greatest day I have. How would you describe something so grand, so amazing? You've heard me say many words like unbelievable. When I heard, hold the word of God, I just read it. Just, this is unbelievable. This is great. This is awesome. My question is, how would you describe the weightiest concept in Scripture? How would you describe the weightiest concept in Scripture? How would you do that? Well, these couple weeks, we're looking at the glory of God. And what is the glory of God? Who is this God we worship? To begin with, I want to read from a famous book called Confessions. Augustine wrote this. And I love this in part four. He begins to describe God. And some of this is old language. I've tried to kind of change, alter it here so it makes a little sense to our ears, unless you like Shakespearean language. He says this, What therefore is my God? What, I ask, but the Lord God. Then he quotes a verse, For who is the Lord but the Lord himself? Or who is God beside our God? Most high, most exalted, most merciful, and most just. And I love this section here. Most secret and most truly present. Most beautiful, most strong. Most stable, yet not supported. Unchangeable, yet changing all things. Never new, never old. Always working, ever at rest. Gathering, yet needing nothing. Seeking, yet possessing all things. Thou recoverest what thou hast never really lost. I love that. Thou art never in need, but still thou dost rejoice at all thy gains. You are never greedy, yet you demand worship. Thou, O men, nothing, yet you pay out to them as if in debt to thy creature. And when thou dost cancel debts, you lose nothing thereby. Yet, O my God, my life, my holy joy, what is this that I have said? What can man say when they speak of thee? But woe to them that keep silent. Since even those who say the most are as those who are dumb and have never spoken a word. I love how he's able to pen out just a few words to say, 
the weightiest thing, God, His glory, really, we cannot say much. Even if you said the grandest things, it would be as though a dumb man has not even uttered a word. And today we will look at again the weightiness, the beauty of the glory of God. So let me pray. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of your story that you've given to us in the Old Testament as it points to the cross. And Lord, I thank you that we have a ministry, that we are not like Moses with a veiled face, but we, with unveiled faces, we reflect the glory. We behold this glory, an ever-increasing glory, as it says in Scripture. And I pray that we would again behold the beauty, the glory of God this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we had a moment to look at 2 Corinthians 13 where Paul looks at the ministry of Moses and how great it was. It was of glory, but now there's even greater glory. The ministry that brought death is nothing compared to the spirit that brings righteousness. And this grand verse, which I think is so important, talks about how when someone turns to Christ, the veil is taken away. Because in the Old Testament, that glory was fading, though it was, it says here. In verse 18, And we who with unveiled faces... Behold, reflect the Lord's glory, are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That is just profound. But today I want to look more at what does this glory mean? So turn to Exodus 33. We've been looking through Exodus. We've been going the way of the cross and we've slowed down in Exodus seeing how in the Old Testament many of these events point to our shadows, our preparations to the cross. Especially the great salvation event in Exodus 14. Remember that chapter, Exodus 14. It's the gospel message in the Old Testament. God comes and saves his people with might. And then we've been looking at Exodus 32, 33, and 34. The beginning of Exodus 33 is a tough part. They just celebrated God. They said, God, you are great. We will follow you forever. And how quickly they made a calf, shaped it into gold, and said, these are your gods. But Moses steps in, looks at the character of God, looks at his promises And God comes. But this chapter, 33, again, like I did last week, it's so huge to me, I took off my shoes. Because this is serious. But, as I read in the New Testament, we are very bold. So I put my shoes back on because of what the Spirit does in us, reflecting that glory. But let's look again at this passage. Exodus 33. 
And we see, I want to look at just a few pleas, a few requests that Moses says to the Lord. Exodus 33, starting with verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, You have been telling me, lead these people. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. He doesn't want to be alone. There's a lot of people. He doesn't want to do this alone. What am I going to do? I can't do this on my own. You have said, I know you by name. You have found favor with me. And here, this verse 13. Again, we have a couple pleas that build up to this great question. Verse 13. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you. Let's stop there. The first plea of Moses is that he would know God. Teach me your ways so that I may... What? What's the, one of the main reasons of salvation? The main reasons of salvation is not so we can have a little palace up in heaven. Trust me, as a little kid, I was all excited about that. I envisioned my little mansion, and I prayed for a banana tree next to my mansion, because I love bananas, and I thought there would be streets of gold, I'm going to etch my name, and I thought, oh, that's what I want. Salvation is not about mainly heaven, that's just one aspect of it. The main aspect of the salvation event is that we would know him. And that's what Moses, he says, if you're pleased with me, teach me so I may know you said this before, listen to this. Knowing God is not just having information about Him. It's not just getting information about God. I've got it, and that's what a, a lot of people who like to go to church, they sit down, they go, okay, give me dad about God. I know God, check, I'm done. It's not just knowing information about Him. It is right relationship and a loving reverence for the Lord that includes submission to His will. Knowing God. That's what Moses asked. Teach me so I will know you. Truly, one of the greatest verses in Scripture is in John. I say this about every verse. Look at John chapter 17. And we will get into this chapter. As we look at Moses who intercedes for his people, who prays for his people, John 17, in my opinion, is probably the greatest chapter of intercession. Hear Jesus. The whole chapter is him praying. And look at this. Get this verse on you. Get it in you. Rivet it to your memory. Etch it into your mind. John 17, 3. You should just go John 17, 3. I know this verse. John 17, verse 3. Now this is eternal life. To say a little sinner's prayer, to go to church and wear a button-up tie, and once in a while Pastor Cody does wear a suit and tie, only on Easter, okay? No, this is eternal life. What is it? I love this. No, this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. What is eternal life? Knowing God. That is the grand desire of our hearts, that we would know him more and more. Amen? That's our desire. And Moses, that's one of his pleas, that I may know you. 
Let's go back to Exodus 33. If you are pleased with me, teach me your ways so that I may know you. And here's the second plea. And continue to find favor with you. Be pleased in me and know and I, so I can have favor in you. To find favor with the Lord is learning about God and knowing Him. Basically, he's asking for reassurance. Lord, do I really have favor with you? Do I really have this? Do I still have this connection? Because, again, remember, Moses would walk in, be with the glory of the Lord. He'd take off his veil. The glory would be there. He'd get a dose of it. He'd step away. And he didn't put a veil on because it was so shiny because people would think his glory. No, it's because it was fading. Am I truly, do I have assurance with your favor? What a great request he has. Again, turn to John. If you don't have a Bible, just put up your hand. Pastor John's got a couple Bibles in the back there. If you don't have a Bible, John chapter 14. John chapter 14. There's so much here. Again, as you know, one of my favorite sections in Scripture, John 14, 15, 16, 17, 18. Um, uh, 13 all the way to 17 that whole section the final discourse is great John 14 15 through 21 if you love me you will obey what I command and I will ask the father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever the spirit of truth The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and will be with you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am with you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he is the one who loves me. He who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. Praise God we have the ministry of the Spirit in us, amen? Where we can know, we don't have to go through rules and regulations, religious duties, dress up fine, get your hair all pretty be without sin, because we are in sin, but because of Christ, He looks at us now, and we see that Christ, His righteousness is on us, and God sees His righteousness, not ours. So He asks for personal reassurance, and if you are in Christ, the Spirit dwells in you, and we have that assurance. And He also asks that He may, in, in a sense, experience this perception of being in his presence. There are a couple major themes in the book of Exodus. A couple things that they build up to. Knowing God. That's huge. God's saving event is by what you see me do. We see, we see that in Exodus chapter 3, chapter 6, chapter 20, 14, of course, is the saving event. But one of the themes in Exodus is this. Lord, 
be with us, dwell with us. And Exodus is all building up to the last chapter where that's where the Lord dwells. And we'll get there. The tabernacle has not yet been built. The dwelling place is not there. So Moses is saying, please, are you, can I be with you? Will you dwell? And gratefully, we have Christ who has dwelt on this earth. And it says, we beheld his glory. Exodus 33. The Lord replied, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Then Moses said to him, this is great. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. Moses has has it right. The most important thing is that God would be with him. He knows that that's the best place to be in the presence of God. I don't want to leave that. If you don't go with us, I'm staying right here in this desert, and I'll just have manna my whole life, and that's good enough because you are great enough. If your presence doesn't go with us, do not send us up from here. Here, now look at this, 16. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? How or what else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And then verse 18. I don't get this. Then Moses said, Now show me your glory. What? Had he not had enough glory? They saw the glory as they traveled. It was in a cloud. It was there. He was up for 40 days in the glory of God. He glowed from it. What, what is he saying here? Now show me your glory. Listen to this. Those who walk with the Lord, who are close to the Lord, who are intimate with him, always will want more of him. Because when you realize that this is life and all the other things you think are important, truly, if you focus on them more than God, it will lead to death. You will realize, this is what I want more of. If you realize who God is, you will want more and more of Him. Moses longed for more of God. He wanted His glory. And that's the ultimate request. Request, show me your glory. He has a personal desire to know God more. Do you have that? Do you come on Sunday and go, oh, the Bible's great, okay, great, and then Monday comes and like, oh, I'll read a verse, that's good enough, let's go on. What are you passionate about? Do you have this desire to say, I want more of you, and I will clean out things in my house. I'll clean out my schedule so I can get more of you. I will get less sleep so I can get more of you. Moses has this desire. And I love, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks here, I love how God comes and says, you know what, I'm going to grant you this request, but as for my glory, you're all about seeing it, but you really can't because you'll be fried. I'll hide you, and you, you, you won't even, you'll get a, just a, a hint of it. It's not what you will see, 
but the words what God shares in Exodus 34. I can't wait to get there. Where he proclaims his name in 13 words, saying, this is my glory. Let me, let me put it in words that you can understand. But glory is this word we're going to stop at today. Glory, many times in Scripture, means the designation of the Lord's manifest presence with His people. And that's what they're longing for. But what does this word glory mean? Listen to me. This word glory is a phrase, is a word, is a term that has become very trite. Very undefined. Very undeveloped. Because we don't take time to think about it. I remember when I was in college, I took a class. It was called Biblical Interpretation. We took this class, and on the first day, the professor, Dr. Muller, says, all right, everyone get a blank piece of paper, write down the word glory. And we wrote it down. He put it on the chalkboard. I don't even use chalkboards anymore today, but he put it on the chalkboard. And he said, someone write a definition for that. And here we are. We're all Christians and. I had so many Bible verses memorized, and we're like, okay, write the definition for glory. Uh, And he said, see how hard this word is? What does this word really mean? Most people don't realize the depth of this word. Here it is. The problem is it's become a commonplace word. It's a common term. I went on the Internet and just around Port Orchard, the word glory shows up. Surprise, surprise, but glory is in the name of one of the coffee shops around here. Glory Coffee and Tea or something it's called like that. That's what people think is glory. Surprise, surprise. The word is it's become trite now. It's called glory something. They have coffee and tea. Another one is a spa. Listen to this. And this is from their website. Where you are the most important part of the day. Is that what glory really is? Where you're the most important part of the day? What is this word glory? In the Hebrew, the word is kavod which can be translated, listen to these and write these words down. Glory, weight, honor, fame, glory, weight. Sometimes in the Old Testament, this word is related to humans. Psalm chapter 8, 4 and 5, it just talks about how we have been put glory upon us. We have dignity, we have respect. We have a heavenly honor. But most of the time the word glory, weight, wealth, fame, honor, deals with God. Listen to this. God's glory is weighty. It's heavy. And here's one of the main problems. Why is it often that when we speak of God, it is though he's on a diet? Right? We don't bring weight to his name. We don't make him great. We almost make him as though he's a God who's on a diet. He's less weighty than he is. We're we're in a culture that's freakish about diets. 
And we have put God on a diet. A diet-type God is what we see today. We don't see this great grand God. And we see this compared to the likeness of worship in many churches. Because in many churches, worship is a big entertainment event. And the church is about style of worship. And that, I believe, takes away from the weightiness of worship. And my prayer is that our church is not about style of worship, but object of worship. Amen? Amen. That's what it should be. And sadly, worship has become a trite thing today. We're all just singing a bunch of loud songs and just entertainment-style worship. Most worship today is fitting for an ordinary God of entertainment. A God who's on a diet, a God who has no weight. And it's also, we can see this, when it comes to the way we understand God, and the word would be doctrine. Most theology, most teaching today is very fitting for an average diet kind of a God. And there's not much weight to it. But in Scripture, I see and we believe that we are under the obligation to understand God, how He has revealed Himself, not how we should perceive Him and slim Him down and make Him fit that this is better for me. This is is a comfortable God for me. Why do so many people go down the path of irreverency by trying to make Him relevant? That doesn't work. We need to see God as who He is and how He's revealed Himself. Not to engage in speculation, but just to say this is how God has revealed himself. Can someone understand God apart from his glory? No. And many people want to stay away from this weighty thought concept of God's glory. So when coming to man, he will not diminish his holiness or lower the bar of fellowship. He is holy, he is glory, and he is grand. So who is this God? One of the great examples of it is, and we'll just briefly look at this, Isaiah chapter 6. Just quickly look at this. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. Think of that. Two covered their faces. Why? Because of the glory of God. And they were calling to one another. I find that interesting. They weren't calling to the Lord. They weren't calling to the lowly people like us. They were calling to one another. Here it is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of His glory. Now look at this. At the sound of their voices, so here these angelic beings say this phrase, and end with the word glory. The whole earth is full of At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. 
Just speaking that, inanimate objects begin to shake. The glory of God is the weightiest subject in all of Scripture. What is glory? In church, we often speak of the term, but it's very difficult to define. So here's what I've done. I've written, I've got a bunch of definitions here from different, different people trying to explain this. Here's one. The unveiling of the radiance and splendor of the Lord. And you'll see a theme here. One aspect is the greatness of God, and one aspect is His public display of it. That's glory. So the unveiling of the radiance of the splendor of the Lord is an aspect of God's glory. Another said this, the created brightness that surrounds God's revelation um, on, on himself. It refers to God's honor. The transcendent essence, some big words here. Here's John Piper. The going public of his infinite worth. The going public of his infinite worth. And like I said last week, our pastor John Gamble is going to come up with a definition of glory. And after looking at this great chapter in 2 Corinthians, this is what John said. The goodness, the character of God as it shines and reflects through his people. Or another, the glory of God is the radiance, the fame, the repute of praise. Or here's one, the intrinsic, the intrinsic reality of external manifestation of his being and character. Wow, these are big terms. Or as one of my favorite authors, Jonathan Edwards, God acting for his own sake. Here's my simple term. The fame, the public fame of his name. God's glory is the public fame of his name because it's all about his glory. And here's the cool thing. All these definitions, I love this. We don't have to define God's glory because he does. Listen to this. He defines it. And we're going to see this next week. God comes. He's, Moses says all these questions. You know, please do this. Please just show me your glory. And this is what God does. He says, you know what? I will honor your requests. But your, my glory is so grand. You, you know, he doesn't say you'll be a crispy critter. But basically, you, you cannot see my face. You will die. So how does he define it? In his Name and through his name is how we see how he saves his people and makes himself known. And I cannot wait for next week and the week after and the week after. We may spend a month and a half just in this section coming up, Exodus 34, 5 through 10. We're going to go. How do you define God's glory? We can come up with all these different ways to do it, but he defines it in his name and then his name takes on flesh in Jesus. They beheld his glory. And then Jesus says, I'm going away. I'm going to send you another. And in that, the glory will shine forth in you. How profound. 
in his character and in his being is the glory of God. But there's a big problem. You know, yeah, one of the problems is churches have kind of slendered God down to be a God on a diet, right? I mean, hopefully you can think of examples of that. We've made God a little bit lighter because he's so heavy, so we can comprehend him. No! But one of the problems is this. Romans chapter 1 spells it out well. Our sin is an effort to rob God of his glory. God said, I will not share my glory with another, and sin is an effort to rob God of his glory. That's a big problem. And when we do not testify to his glory, we rob him of his glory. Did you just hear that? So maybe you're thinking, well, I don't do great sins. I don't do things. But when you do not testify of his glory, live for his glory, you rob from his glory. And the result is what? Death. That's profound. When you don't live, when you do not live for his glory, you rob from it. And the heart of disobedience is seeking your own glory, in which I am guilty of, and you are guilty of. But God, I love that. He did something about it. Romans 3.21 But now a righteousness from God has been made known to which the law and prophets testified. The whole testament is testifying saying it's coming in the Messiah. And this righteousness from God is made known. The heart of disobedience is seeking my own glory but Christ has come to solve that problem. God's glory is shown to humans in many different ways. The Old Testament pointed to it. The New Testament time, they beheld his glory. They've seen Jesus. And the more we see Jesus in Scripture, listen to this, we more reflect his glory. The main beauty is the beauty of his holiness. And the more we see that, the more we reflect it, and it becomes glorious. And the supreme manifestation of his glory so far has been the cross and resurrection. And that's where we have life. The gospel is the best display of the glory of God this side of heaven. Remember that. The gospel is the best display of the glory of God this side of heaven. And we get to celebrate that. So let me ask you this again. How would you describe the weightiest concept in all of Scripture? My answer is this. I let him do it. I let him show it. And I let him do it in Scripture and through what we can see, what we can read, and what we experience. But here's the question. How would you celebrate the weightiest concept in all of Scripture? How do you celebrate the weightiest concept in all of Scripture? How do you celebrate the glory of God? That's a great question. And honestly, I believe there's a few 
Simple answers, but one core thing. We celebrate by living for him. We have died. Now get on the task with living for him, right? Easter is done, but you know what? Wake up every day and go, I am alive in Christ. I'm no longer bound to this. I am alive in him. I'm free. I live for him. I've died to myself. Now get on the task of living for him. Another aspect of how do we celebrate the glory of God is knowing him more. Reading. You want to know God? It's right here. He's revealed himself. Be a man, be a woman of the word. This is how you know God. You want to hear his voice? It's right here. Another aspect of how we celebrate the wittiest concept is through communion. We celebrate. We break the bread and say, his body broke for me because of this. I, I don't have to die. His blood for me? We celebrate, we, we take this and we think, we remember the greatness, the great glory of the cross. I deserve death. But he took my place. His righteousness, not mine. And we celebrate it in communion. That's one of the greatest ways. Ultimately, the core way is the word worship. And worship isn't just with song. Worship is with deed. Worship is with mindset. Worship is with habits. Worship with, with desires. Your total being, your body worship him. That's the ultimate way to celebrate the glory of God. But we, as the New Testament church, we celebrate by remembering Again, it's just it's amazing that of all the different events, there's many commands that Jesus gave us. But of all the commands, there's one he said to remember about his life. Wasn't it birth? There's many commands in the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Sermon on the Mount. But the one thing he said about his life to remember is his death and resurrection. That's what we celebrate. We celebrate his glory. We don't have to take off our shoes. It's not of fear, but we are freed because of the work on the cross. And we who, with unveiled faces, reflect as we behold. And that's a concept I think that's important. We'll try to look at it more. The more you behold the glory of God, the more you reflect it to him and praise and worship, and to this world, they will see you're different. And that's what we do, and that's how we celebrate the Lord. So today, would you celebrate with me the weightiest concept in all of Scripture? The theme and the purpose of our life is to live for the glory of God. One of the greatest ways we can celebrate is to take communion. To celebrate Christ, you came, you took on flesh. I could not do it, but you did it for me. And this is how we celebrate. And here at Crossway Church, we have what we would say open communion. It's open 
to those who are not members, because we don't even have membership yet. We're a young church, we don't have members, so okay, that's taken care of. Some churches, you have to be a member, you have to go through all this stuff. Here's how we see it. And I think this is a very biblical concept of communion. If you realize that Romans 1 aspect, I, in my sin, rob God from his glory, and because of that, the result should be death. But God is not just just, right? He would be just to condemn us all forever, right? But he's more than just. He's grace and mercy. And in his grace and mercy, he's loved us. And the eternal Son of God took on flesh, lived a life of obedience all the way to the cross for the glory of God, John 17. The word glory shows up often. I've done this for your glory, he says to his Father. And if you believe in him and say, Jesus, you're the only hope I have in life. Because of the cross and resurrection, I have life. And if that's you, join us in celebrating communion. Join us in celebrating this glory of God. And if that's not you, if your heart's not ready, please, just pass today and that's fine. But if you want to join us, let's celebrate the greatest concept in Scripture, the glory of God. So let me pray as we prepare our hearts to celebrate Holy Communion.